Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, and today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Janelle Sokolowicz to Raise the Line. She's the Academic Vice President and Dean of the Levitt School of Health at Western Governors University, which serves students from across the United States with online competency-based programs. Dr. Sokolowicz has been an academic leader for more than a decade, serving as a Dean of Academic Operations, an Interim Dean, and a faculty member. Her research interests include the successful orientation of nursing faculty and academic support of culturally and linguistically diverse students. She received her own Bachelor of Science and Master's in Nursing from University of Phoenix and her PhD in Education from Capella University. And we're very happy to have you on the program today. Thanks so much. Super excited to be here. We uh, like to start with learning more about our guests. In your case, we want to know what first got you interested in healthcare and, and particularly nursing. It's really funny. I thought healthcare would be the last place I would end up. I was really sick as a child. I had a chronic illness and spent a lot of time in the hospital almost every holiday until I turned 14 and thought I would never go back to another hospital ever. And <laughs> um, went to college for something else and then decided, um, I kept seeing these commercials, weirdly enough, about being a nurse and did a little bit more research and was like, you know, I really could probably be a good nurse because I've been in the hospital, I've been on the other side, I've been receiving care. And I start thinking back to all the nurses that made such an impact on me as a child and helped me to grow up to now be a, a functioning adult and um, wanted to see what that was like. And so I decided to go the nursing route. I was accepted in nursing school. And it was funny because I did my prerequisites at the same time that I was actually in nursing school already. So most people don't do that, but because I had already gone to college, they let me do that. And it was an amazing experience and I'm so happy I chose it because the impact that choosing to become a nurse has made on my life is, is more than I could ever put into words. Did you know kind of right away that you'd made the right choice? It's funny, everything just kept happening right. So everything kept happening and the doors kept opening. So what happened is I applied and they told me I'd hear back by June and that month came and went and they called me on July 5th to say, can you start someone else drop? And so I started. And then when I went to go um, buy my books, I was waiting tables at the time because I knew I was gonna have to go back to school. So I, I wanted to have kind of a part-time job. And when I went to go buy my books, the exact amount I made the day before was the exact amount of my books. <laughs> and so just doors kept opening. Um, I went into pediatrics, that's my background. And I actually purchased my license plate. Um, I'm originally from Virginia. And so our license plates, you can pick different things. And I picked the kids one and it had talked about children had hand stamps for children on it. And I picked Pete's nurse and I wasn't a nurse yet. And I decided to just pick it like I was speaking into existence what I wanted to become. <laughs> and, uh, and I became a Pete's nurse. You willed it to happen. I did, I did, so yeah. That's fantastic. And did you know from the start that you wanted to be in academic medicine and then beyond that, a leader? Or was that not expected? So no. So right before I finished school, I had a wonderful instructor. Her name is Dr. Pamela Bernacki. And maybe one day she'll be listening to this and, and hear her name and the impact she made on my life. But um, Dr. Bernacki was my final 
instructor. The last year I was in nursing school and associate's degree was my first nursing degree. So community college and she was a nurse practitioner and a phenomenal, phenomenal teacher. Uh, just phenomenal. Made such an impact on me. And it was about two weeks before I finished. And I just said to myself, man, if I could ever grow up and be like her, I, I thought about it. And then it kind of went away, right? So I went into practice, loved practice. I actually had started a grad program to become a nurse practitioner and happened to be at the time when we had our previous worst RSV year ever. We had a pretty terrible one in the last couple of years, but that time it happened to be one of the worst RSV respiratory syncytial virus, um, which is a, a common pediatric virus, but affects newborns pretty significantly. Most children have a cold, a really long cold, but newborns significantly impacted respiratory wise. And um, I've had to go to the morgue about nine times in seven days with children dying from RSV. Gosh. And I, I had always taken students, always volunteered myself to take the student, the student that no one wanted to take. I always took the student. And that really, I said, man, do I really want to do this forever? I didn't have children then. I wasn't married. And so I couldn't imagine having had children and trying to do this. And so I kind of turned track right about then. And at the same time, a friend of mine asked, hey, can you come do clinical for us at the long-term care facility? Well, I'm a peds nurse, but I wanted to learn something about adults. I didn't know much about caring for adults outside of school. And so I took this job and loved it. Loved the students, loved the elderly community, loved all of it. And it was like my fill of caring for adults while still being a full-time peds nurse. So I've actually... As funny as it sounds, I've actually been in higher ed almost as long as I've been a nurse because I just started so early. And I just did that for a long time, kind of part-time here and there. And then that same friend had a full-time position open. And she said, have you considered teaching didactic? And uh, I said, well, I'll see. And somebody called off for the beginning of a semester. So they had students in a classroom with no teacher. Wow. And she said, can you come? <laughs> And she handed me a PowerPoint deck. They had a standardized curriculum and a bunch of LPN students sitting in the classroom. And I said, I guess I'll figure it out. And I winged it for eight hours and taught a fundamentals class. And that was it. I was, I was hooked. Their faces, the, the bright light, the, I got this, I can do this. It just hooked me. And I absolutely fell in love with students. And as we talk more, you'll kind of learn about what's happened since then that really has impacted who I am, I hope, as a leader um, and as a person overall, uh, just what I learned in that classroom. You know, it's a good example of the breadth of nursing opportunities, right? Just in that little story, you're talking about being in a different settings, peds and long-term care mm -hmm. and clinical setting and teaching. And it's really one of the appeals of, of nursing, I think, for people. It is. The, the future is so bright and, and actually untapped. Untapped people don't realize, I think, even students, we try to communicate just the decision they've made and how dynamic that decision can be uh, and how it can change. And you can do almost anything that you're great at, almost anything, right? You don't have to just settle it there. So, so being in academic medicine is one thing, but getting onto a leadership path and, and climbing up as high as you have is an entirely different uh, ball of wax. So tell us about that progression. Yeah, so I will say that everything happens with great people who are willing to mentor you and give you a chance. For myself, that one friend, uh, her name is Robin, and she is still a dean at ECPI University. 
she gave me that chance. She saw something in me. Um, she used to come and evaluate clinical. She, she really helped me develop who I became as a leader because some of the things that she did, I took on with me throughout my career. But she came to do an evaluation of me in clinical and I was, you know, pretty new. I mean, really novice, really green. And she mentored me and I would take that mentoring. And I always have this person that's when willing to give me a chance. Uh, I will say probably the most impactful thing is being willing to accept critique and being willing to listen to editing and, and taking that information and using it and applying it and not, you know, not taking a lot personal, but really understanding that these people are spending time to invest in you professionally. And so I had that person. So Robin was the first, she gave me that opportunity. I fell in love with teaching we moved states and I applied uh, for a position at a small school in Southwest suburbs of Illinois and met my future leader, met her. She was the Dean at the time, mentored me, saw something in me and decided to teach me about how to launch labs and handle um, a budget and do all types of things that I didn't know about. And she ended up leaving and I became the interim Dean uh, of that school. And then she actually left for my previous institution and then waited about a year and called me, hounded me incessantly to come and apply to work with her again. <laughs> and she had a role that she wanted for me. And the funny part about that is I, I went my interview with her and she said, I have these two positions and uh, which one do you think, you know, looks good to you? And I said, I I'm not sure. I don't really know anything about this institution. So I don't know what looks good to me per se. I said, why don't you pick, you know, me, you've worked with me, you know, my skills and abilities, you know, where I need to improve still be very honest. And what do you think is best? And she said, I think you're ready. I think you're ready for this other higher position. And that changed the trajectory of my future. So it's, it's letting people really guide you. Um, and be honest with you and allowing that to happen so that you don't maybe have a false sense of what you need to improve, but you can be very honest about where you need to improve and allowing her to make that decision as a leader when she needed me to be a high performing person, it changed the trajectory of everything. Uh, it really led me on this path. She chose for me to be a Dean. And then with that, I, I really took that to heart and did all I could to educate myself and, and grow as a leader. And as we advanced, I kind of progressed. And then I had another person speak into me and, and help me on my diversity journey of, of equity and access and attainment and how that would work. And that gentleman was able to guide me in my equity work. And then after that, I met uh, my Dean Emeritus for WGU. They recruited me to this position and she gave me a chance. Hundreds and hundreds of people applying, hundreds of people wanting the role. And she saw something in me and I was very honest with her about things I needed to improve upon in myself and my leadership. And she was committed to helping me do that. And I will say that that is what kind of led the way to, to today. It's a wonderful story. And I'm sure you're very cognizant of that now that you're in a role where you can help exactly. younger people along a leadership path. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've, you've had some good role models for that. Yeah. And I, I believe it is my responsibility uh, to pay it forward, to serve as a role model and a mentor, 
Um, my team, and I, I know it now, honestly, because I just had our NPS scores come back, and my team says that she's always talking about what our next steps will be in our future. And um, I want to put them in a place in which they can excel, and I want to give all of them an opportunity to take my place, to do the next thing that they are phenomenal at. I am so blessed with an amazing team right now, and I I want them each to have an opportunity to serve as my colleague, as a co-dean at other institutions, maybe even not my own, but I want to build that next set of nurse leaders. And I, I take it personally because I have been gifted and blessed with many that have done it for me. That's terrific. So let's get into WGU a little bit. It's a very well-known course, but not everybody might know um, the details there and, and also particularly the Levitt School. Yeah, so Western Governors University, uh, lovingly known as WGU, was started by 19 bipartisan governors over 25 years ago. Uh, we're celebrating year 26 this year. Last year was really a celebration of our 25th year anniversary. Uh, and the Levitt School of Health and our nursing programs began in 2009 and really have taken flight uh, since then, we serve, traditionally serve, close to twenty to 30,000 students, give or take, a month uh, because we admit every month. And so that number can change pretty uh, significantly depending on where we are. And in that work, uh, we have graduated over 120,000 healthcare professionals, um, and we hail 17% of all BSN holders in the country have graduated from the Levitt School of Health. Wow. And so we're very excited. We were renamed from the College of Health Professions to the Levitt School of Health last year in honor of one of our founding governors, uh, Governor Mike Levitt from Utah, who also served uh, on the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary. So uh, he is an amazing guy and we felt our honor uh, because of the work that they did as a bipartisan group to build Western Governors University, thinking that the internet could be the next wave of education and a way to advance equity um, in access and attainment. And you'll hear us say that, and that just means we want to be the most inclusive university in, in the country. And we also want to ensure that every student, every person who chooses a degree program has the ability to attain that. Um, given whatever large life circumstances are in front of them and that we advance equity in all ways. And so uh, we are very excited about the future of the Levitt School of Health. I have the great honor of having taken the helm when our Dean Emeritus, who uh, began 14 years prior, started the school as one of the first and only uh, online uh, nursing programs, pre-licensure nursing programs, as well as one of the largest RNBSM programs and our myriad of other programs. So right now we have uh, RNBSN program that on average has about 15,000 students. We have our pre-licensure nursing program that has on average up to 1,500 students. A psychiatric MP program that's brand new, just launched last year, FNP program on average has around, you know, six to 700 students. And then we have our graduate programs Master's in Nursing Leadership and Management, Master's in Nursing Education, and Master's in Nursing Informatics. And then I'm also responsible as the Academic Vice President Dean over the non-nursing programs, so our health professions programs, which include health services coordination, renamed Health and Human Services recently, and a Master's in Health Leadership that will become a Master's in Health Administration this year. Um, and then we have a Bachelor's in 
health information management as well. And we will continue to expand our portfolio this year in non-nursing degree programs. Um, and last year, we're really blessed by our board of directors for Western Governors University with allowing us to expand our entry-level or traditional pre-lecture program. And so we will expand our program. We will now be in 11 states um, and we'll be expanding in the next five years to more states within a hybrid. So because we do have a lab, it's considered hybrid, but it is an online um, traditional entry-level pre-licensure program. And the reason we've done that is because we are in a state of emergency, right? As far as our healthcare workforce um, and our nursing shortage. And so the commitment of our board was that uh, they knew um, and I was able to appeal to them and explaining to them that not one person in that room would not enter the healthcare system at some point in their life. And I think that was letting them understand the seriousness thereof of where we are. And so um, we now have the commitment of our board and our CEO, Scott Pulsifer, to advance health equity by creating primary care providers through our nursing programs. And so we hope to do that at scale. We hope to have upward of 10,000 students um, in the next few years so that we can help significantly impact the health disparity and health equity of this nation through development of net new nurses. Wow, that's a lot of growth. Yeah, a lot of growth. But very dynamic situation. So you mentioned access to education and, and diversity. So what are some of the tools you have at your disposal to do that? How are you guys accomplishing that? You know, a lot of it is we have what we call our key results. It's what we care about at WGU and, you know, if you ask yourself, like, what are things that make it so that you can get those things accomplished. A unified vision is one of them. And one of our key results, now graduation is part of it. We care about graduation, not just about how many students we have, but how many students we graduate. So I'm actually evaluated on how many I graduate, not just how many start. Uh, nobody's super excited if there's just all these students, but no one's finishing. So we care about graduation. We also care about something called factor graduate return. And this is new uh, to many institutions, but here at WGU, our CEO had a vision of what would it look like if not just that people finished school, but that they weren't in debt post-finishing school and that we had an expectation to help manage that debt. And so I am actually evaluated according to how our students are in debt two years post-graduation. And our CEO and, and WGU is actually partnered with Equifax to make sure we actually can measure that. So we're looking at our students, the jobs and the degrees that we've chosen that they equal a livable wage. Hmm. So we will only have programs that equal a livable wage. No matter how many programs we could do, we only choose programs that equal a livable wage. And we want to make sure that we're advancing health equity one student at a time by creating not only opportunity that we know a higher level degree equals higher pay, but a higher level degree also equals access to medical education and insurance, which decreases morbidity mortality. So we believe personally that our impact on health equity is from our core beliefs as an institution. And then the final thing that we truly live on is our equity and access entertainment. And what that means is for me in the Levitt School of Health, our goal is rural health specifically. 
the 40 million people living in rural communities. We believe at the Levitt School of Health that if we can impact rural communities at scale, we can impact everyone. If we can do it in the middle of nowhere, Montana, or in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, or in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, if we can provide quality education to those students and a pathway for them to improve their own health just by education alone, which then increases their ability to understand their health, then we can make a difference at scale. We see ourselves as personally responsible uh, for supporting and advancing health equity through education. And that is the goal of the Levitt School of Health at WGU. And I have the full backing of our CEO, senior vice president and leaders to do so. And they have empowered us to do that. And, and I'm excited about it. No, oh, that's fantastic. Very broad perspective on the whole thing, you know, not just the educational piece, but what happens mm -hmm. afterward. Yeah. What's the goal, right? What's the goal of health education is health equity. There is no other goal. So on the uh, getting back to the, the two year look back at how your students are doing with income and so forth. You also mentioned the debt piece of that. Are you also trying to see at two years how much debt they've got? Correct. Yeah. So that's really the main thing is, is that before our board would ever approve us increasing tuition, we have to make sure that that tuition does not leave our students with a job that would have their education costs have been higher than what they would make at their job two years later. That's really how we manage it. So we manage it through selective programming. We won't pick programs that we know at the end. And I'm happy everybody should have an opportunity to get all types of education and credentials. There's room for all of us, right? But specifically for us and specifically for WGU, we try to make sure that our programming, we're looking at what the wage is when they graduate and then what their wage is two years post-graduation to make sure that, that we have now indebted them to the point they would not be able to pay that off um, in their lifetime. But I'm wondering if the commitment to providing workforce in rural areas makes that a little more difficult because the pay is lower. It does. And so that's why we have partnerships with communities, with community health centers, with, we have people who give scholarships. Uh, right now we have the Julie Aiken Hansen scholarship um, that will pay wraparound. So it's not a scholarship where you have to make a GPA or you just say you want to try nursing school, they'll pay for you. We have an entire regional team that's committed and a grants team that's committed to nothing but getting scholarships, partnerships to get students access. We just made a huge commitment in partnership with DaVita Health to have them provide scholarships to students who are willing to go into nephrology, nursing, post-graduation. And we also keep our tuition low. We try to stay as low as we possibly can so that if they do choose, we know that no matter what, even if they live in rural America, their income as a nurse is higher than the average person in that area, right? And so they still have an opportunity to advance if they go into health leadership. Um, and then the other part that I do that's different is I get the voice of rural America. So I actually partner with the National Rural Health Association. I have on our advisory council, uh, rural CNOs and CEOs, people who live in rural health. I actually just had a meeting with um, the Rural Health Association for the state of Washington, and she talked to me about the challenges they're having. So the goal of all of it is that we have an opportunity to hear the voice of the student, of those that would be hiring these students and understand what is it that we have to do to make sure we can keep low cost, quality education, and still meet our mission. Yeah. 
Good questions. You know, the other thing you mentioned is the completion rate, which is a huge issue in higher education across the board. Community colleges struggle with this. And I know you're somebody that speaks about non-academic support strategies for high-risk students. So talk about some of some of those strategies. Yeah. So, you know, I pride myself and, and my research has been in supporting linguistically diverse students. Uh, since now we have about 68 million people in the United States that speak a language other than English at home. And if you put that in perspective, uh, 20 years ago, we only had 20 million. Okay, so we tripled the amount of people who speak a language other than English at home. And within that, we know the need to advancing health equity. And so what we've done is we do very intentional things to ensure that every student has access. Um, that every student has a good experience in an online setting. You know, I did a research study on my last institution specifically about multilingual students' online perception of belonging. How do they feel they belong? Do they see people look like them? Do they hear people that had an accent like them or um, spoke their language within their degree program? So we think about it. We make sure that our if we do review sessions or lectures that they have subtitles included, that they can download a transcript that they can listen to it at any time. Uh, we make sure that our pictures are inclusive. We have a dedicated language library that we use for our curricula so that we're using the same content and language throughout the program that we've agreed upon that's evidence-based and it's a glossary that we use. Our program development team has a DEI framework that they use when they develop content and so if you don't meet our criteria, we won't use your content. Um, we're really intentional about how we support diverse students because it's one thing to take them in. It's another thing to graduate them. Yeah, makes total sense. So uh, as you may know, Osmosis is a teaching company, and we love to fill knowledge gaps. Uh, we also like to get direction from our guests about where to look to fill one of those gaps. Is there something that you are really passionate about and you wish more people understood that topic? And, and if so, what is it? Well, kind of what we just talked about. I believe the biggest gap right now, specifically in nursing education, health education, is the understanding of the large diverse population that we actually have. I think that when a person traditionally thinks about putting their classroom together, they're assuming that every person whose primary language is English and has been educated in the United States. And I believe, you know, their primary K-12, I believe that needs to transition like immediately. Your assumption should be that 90% of the people speak a language other than English at home and that they were not primarily educated in the United States. Hmm. And if you can take that perception when you build anything, this podcast, a webinar, an interview, and you take the perception that that person is learning. An academic language takes seven years to learn if you speak another language at home. It takes three years for you and I. Academic language is seven years for a person who speaks a language other than English at home. So I put you into a health profession that speaks Latin at work, <laughs> academic language at school, and I'm translating. Yeah. It is up to us as educators to make that more inclusive. And I believe this has been missed. I believe we still create things with this perception of them being primary English speakers. And we are growing by leaps and bounds. 
And we need more diversity in nursing. There's no way we'll get it unless we advance and we change how we do things, how we build content. That's why I'm so passionate about my work at AACN and helping develop the diversity toolkit, passionate about my work with AACN and working on the revised essentials and the task force that I've worked with with them. Um, I'm working right now the technology task force as well as the assessment task force because the one thing I don't want to happen when everyone else moves to CBE, which I believe WGU has done a very good job of, is allowing the bias to create more of a divide. Because if we go to pass fail and I pass fail you because I want you to sound like me and think like me and have my traditional upbringing, then we will be defeating our own selves with the transition. So how do I do that is I have a seat at the table to, to make sure that the voice of those who are diverse, who come from all over the world to make this their home, that they are able to advance and to become healthcare professionals to care for their own communities. Yeah, that's a terrific answer. And not something actually we've heard. Uh, we've done 360 shows and nobody has pointed it out in that particular way. So appreciate that. Um, <laughs> so just as we wrap up, you're dealing with students all the time. What's your go-to advice to them about approaching their career in healthcare? Don't limit yourself. Don't limit yourself on where your background was, what your education was. Don't limit yourself on your family status, who you're caring for. Um, there is a place for you in this healthcare community. It is the one thing that we all will participate in at some point in our lifetime. Either way, we will go through the healthcare system. It is the biggest country, right? It's the biggest world, it's the biggest uh, business, it's its own entity. And so there's a space for everyone. If you wanna do IT, there's a space for you. If you wanna do business, there's a space for you. If you wanna care for patients, there's a space for you. If you never wanna talk to patients, there's a space for you. And so don't limit yourself and don't perceive that it's not something you can do, whether you're the first person in your family to ever enter higher education in college, whether you have multiple children at home and you are a primary care provider, whether you're caring for your parents, um, you have a space here and we need you. We need you as a student. We need you as an educator. We need you so much. We need your experiences. We need your passion. We need your the, the flaws that you have. You can share that with others. It makes them know that you're human and you can accomplish it. This is a place for all. If there's any place that there is equitable need, this is it. The healthcare workforce is it, wherever you choose to do. And I believe that there's a place for everyone. I believe as a woman and a woman of color that I have a responsibility to let people know that there is a space for them as high up as leadership as you want to be, as beside the patient if you want to be. There's a space for you. And I'm also a daughter of a single mom. And I'm telling you that there is room. There is opportunity. You must believe in yourself. Use your network. Use your network. Use people you know. Ask questions. And don't ever not believe that you can do it because you have all the potential to be whatever it is you choose to be in our workforce and we need you well that is a wonderful inspirational note to end on and i want to thank you so much dr sokolowicz for taking the time to be with us today thank you so much i'm michael carice thanks to everybody for joining us today and remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system we're all in this together If you like this podcast, 
please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.